0: This is the K Cut. I'm Rachel, and I'm a writer for Films Fatale. I have a column on world cinema and one on lost films, two of my very great interests. Uh, who else is here with me?
1: James here. I'm a digital media creator. I produce and release music out of the AOS Boutique Paul, and I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast.
2: I am Andreas. I'm the creator and uh, one of the writers of Films Fatale. And um, I love art house and international cinema, but I also love a little bit of everything. So uh, let's get into that today. This was uh, my week to decide, like, what are we going to discuss? And, you know, a couple of things happened. So first off, I've just completed a move. So I'm feeling a little bit of, like, a a series of different emotions. And at the same time, I've never had to really, like, be mindful of what I'm watching when I'm watching Because, you know, I would just kind of watch that by myself. But now having somebody else be like, oh, this is interesting or I don't know how I feel about this. Seeing somebody else's reaction was like, okay, maybe what I can stomach or what I can love is not the same as everybody else, which is obviously self-explanatory. That's, that's, you know, not – that's not like some sort of surprise. But, again, that got me really thinking like, okay, what are – People's thresholds, and because I was going through the motions, what are cinematic, you know, sympathetic portrayals of these emotions? Where it's like, okay, what film has made me feel the saddest? What has made me feel, you know, really repulsed? What has made me feel happy? And so I decided, hey, why don't we just. Take up the entire episode, going through these films that we identify with these different emotions very heavily. So the emotions I picked were uh, depressed, feeling like you're in love, uh, you know, fearful, happy, and disgusted. So uh, let's let's go through each of them, and uh, this is going to be a whole array of different stuff, and I'm very excited for this. I'm actually gonna change the order here. I'm gonna make happy last, so at least we can, um, you know, end off on a happy note, right? <laughs> so who doesn't want that? So let's get the the hard stuff out of the way first. I'll toss in love in there somewhere. Let's start off with depressed. What is the most depressing movie we've ever seen? Where as soon as we see it, we could have won the lottery. We watch this movie and it's like, oh my god, I hate everything. Like it's just like the most depressing film you'll ever see um let's start off with you james what is what is your depressed film the thing that that brings you to sadness on like any other movie
1: yeah i was trying to think of what to go with this and then i figured out the perfect one and it is a german film from 2006 called the free will i've actually not seen
2: that is that uh an indie film or Yes. Okay. What's it about?
1: Um, Trigger warning. This is a film that does deal with sexual assault. Okay. And it actually deals with the main character is somebody who gets arrested for an assault. And the movie is about after, after his arrest and after his rehabilitation, him going back into society. And it's kind of about him just assimilating back to normal life and, you know, he ends up getting in a relationship that really helps him out. And I'm not going to give too much away, but it has one of the most depressing endings ever. And it also is one of those things where it begs the question, do people like that change? And by the end of it, it's apparent that he can't change. And that's just really depressing because, you know, it's clear people who do these kinds of crimes clearly have something wrong. But most times in society, it's not dealt with in the way it should. So it's really just this film that deals with... Honestly, I think the core issue is dealing with mental health in regards to people who commit crimes like this. Yeah, I've only watched it once, and I think I'll only ever need to see it once, because yeah, it's... Like, we were talking about how bleak the ending of Dancer in the Dark was. This definitely tops it.
2: Really, okay, because Dancer in the Dark is like... is like obsidian darkness so, okay so that, that that's saying a hell of a
1: lot then yeah well, it was actually a film that i got because it was by this this boutique dvd company that had acquired six films and that's all they ever acquired one of them being lol which was the second feature of indie filmmaker joe Swanberg, and then another film in the collection was um The Good Times Kid by Azazel Jacobs, and also this really weird film called The Guatemalan Handshake, which is really strange. But yeah, I just sort of bought it on a whim because I just bought all of them because I was like, oh, these are all the films they got. And then I watched that and I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to be happy for the rest of the day
2: yeah I, I can't even imagine. Uh, Rachel, what is what is your film that makes you feel like you can't be happy for the rest of the day after you see it?
0: I'm gonna be honest, I took this prompt a little differently than you guys did. I was thinking more what most accurately reflects these feelings for me, not so much what makes me feel that way.
2: Hey, I, I like that. It gives us a little bit of a, a little bit of a range, you know.
0: Yeah, so my choice was Beginners, which is not an overly depressing film. It does have some sad moments. It stars Ewan McGregor and Christopher Plummer. And McGregor's character is, I think, low to moderately depressed for most of the movie. He's grieving. He's got some other stuff going on. And the whole movie is about him coming to terms with certain aspects of his life. And uh, eventually he meets a love interest, that sort of thing. And it's incredibly realistic because it's the movie's got this kind of numbness to it. And at the end, even though things are starting to go better for him, it's not easily resolved and he's not going to be better overnight. And I think that's so realistic and it leaves you with such a strong impression of what mood disorders can be like. So that's my pick in terms of accuracy.
2: Yeah, uh, that film, that film is a bit of a doozy. It It's interesting that you selected that film for this because, again, there, there is a lot of joy found within it, but... Um, it's prevalent feeling is obviously sadness, and and I, I can see why that would be conveyed because that's like a, a heavy theme of the film. How can you how can you live past it? So I think that's a strong choice for sure.
0: Yeah. Um. So really, it wasn't about how the impact it had at me, on me. It was about the experience that it presented to us. Yeah. Which
2: again, I think that's uh, a fantastic a fantastic angle that we can use because um, it presents listeners with, with a whole different side of it. So uh, I, I think, I think that's great. I think um, we could definitely stick with it. What I have for mine is, is for sure I've said for years, and even in my review for this, I've said, it's the most depressing film I've ever seen. And I don't, I don't think that will ever change. That's always all about Lazar by uh, Robert Bresson, where um, I don't even know what to say about it. Basically, you have two lives. You have that of, of a young girl in the village and this donkey. And their lives kind of just separate. But they parallel one, one another in like a whole series of ways. I can't even go into it because it's, it's, it's very difficult to discuss. But it's basically... How society can abuse, mistreat, or neglect its citizens. And um that's about all I can say about that. I don't think either of you have seen this, correct?
0: I have not. Correct.
2: It's uh Bray works very swiftly. His films are typically very short. Some of them are like literally like right on the cusp of like 60 or 70 minutes. Um, but what he shows is exactly what he needs to show. and it's short, but it's gonna feel like like one of the longest films you've ever seen. Um, the only film that ever comes close in my mind to this level of, of you know sadness is actually another Brisson film. It's, it's Bouchette, which for years, I thought that was like the bleakest ending I had ever seen until I saw this one and it's like, well, it's like that, but worse. It's like that, but ten times worse. And yeah, Bryson, Bryson knew how to make somebody feel like complete and utter crap. So uh, let's let's get into something a little bit more optimistic. Let's um let's discuss the films that uh, project love or make you feel like you're in love. Whether uh you know you can identify with the characters or just what like their sensation. So let's just go in the same order. Uh, James, what is your film that makes you feel like you're in love for, uh, you know, at least can identify with that theme heavily?
1: Before Sunrise.
0: Aww.
2: What about
1: the rest of the Before series? Oh, I mean, uh, of course, overall, the Before series, but I just kind of wanted to highlight the, the first one.
2: That's fair, because that's the one where it's like this fleeting romance and the other two are like, what happened to you? We were supposed to meet up again and, then it's life afterwards. So it's a little bit more dramatic, but the first one, that first one. Yeah. Please, please go into it.
1: I just think how spontaneous it is. You know, these just, these two people meet in another country and they fall in love and it's just, you know, it's a great snapshot of just like the perfect night, you know, they spend this time together, it's short-lived, but, you know, you would almost think they'd been together for years with how they interact with each other.
2: Yeah, I think in terms of, like, romances, the the Before series is just amazing, but especially that first one. That first one where... You're right, it feels like... It feels like... Like, life is actually happening, and you're witnessing people actually falling in love. It's, it's a fantastic representation of that, because any other filmmaker could have made something vapid, or writers, because, you know, I'm going to include Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke in this as well, but, um, you know, who are the stars, and, you know, their improvisations are considered writing. But here it's all natural, and it's all hyper-real, and it, it really is, like, this sensation of falling in love that many films just cannot capture
1: yeah, so it's, it's also like the approach. It's almost pre mumblecore, you know, with their improvisations and just the setting. Or it's just kind of like you just kind of like you're like a fly on the wall mm-hmm. on you know the adventures of this you know couple who are just living their best life, almost carefree.
2: You view it as pre mumblecore, which is fascinating. I view it almost like the late American answer to French New Wave, something like uh, like a like a Truffaut film, like a, like a 400 blows where you just see like life happening. And it's uh, almost like the I, bridge between the two. Exactly. Exactly. Like, um, and weirdly enough, yeah, you have like this American filmmaker with Linklater later who, who was able to pull it off in a very, a very big Hollywood at the time. So, um, Yeah, the Before series is just amazing. Uh, Rachel, are you also going to toss in a Before film, or are you going to do something else?
0: No, no, I won't go Before. I'm going to go Away with Away We Go. Ah, a nice segue. (laughs) Yeah, so I found this really interesting in that every single movie I chose tonight without me thinking about it was from about the span of 2008 to 2011. So it was right when I was graduating high school and starting university, just starting to become an adult, debatably. So... I guess that's why these films had such a big impact on me. And Away We Go is the kind of relationship and the kind of life I would like to have. And it is one of the best portrayals of a couple that are at home with each other, that are comfortable, that I've ever seen. So it's John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph. They are kind of 30-ish. They're expecting their first baby. But they've never really set down roots. Like, they live somewhere, but it doesn't feel like a home. So they take off on this trip all over America, a little bit of Canada... And they visit various friends and families, see how they live, and see if that's where they can settle. And so the movie takes you all over the place, a lot of the ups and downs of life. And in the end, home isn't really a place. It's, to be cliched, with each other. What the movie drives home to me is the closeness between Krasinski and Rudolph and the sort of ease with each other that I think is a model of relationships.
2: Yeah, you brought this one up before in the pod, if I'm not mistaken. And It
0: was a random wreck one week.
2: Yes, I, I, like I said back then, uh, I'm going to have to check it out. I, I haven't yet, so I'm sorry for, for lying. Uh, but I do attend on it, and I'm glad that you brought it up again, because I do feel like, uh, first off, it's a Sam Mendes film, correct? Yes, it is. Um,
0: and it's got a good you cast.
2: Really, yeah, it's got a good cast and a lot of problems. You really, especially out of his films, you really don't hear about it often.
0: Hmm. It kind of slipped under the radar, I think. A lot of people perceive the lead couple to be snobby and sort of we're better than all our friends and family, but that's not really what I took from it. It's more, well, the way other people live is not necessarily the way we're going to live, and that's not a bad thing, but it's just not us.
2: Fair enough. Well, um, I'd like to see something more straightforward and romantic from from San Mendes. That does sound very interesting, so I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, For me, um, I went with something a little bit more melodramatic, uh, compared to both of your choices. Uh, I went with Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a, probably my most recent film I picked, I think. Um, 2019, should have been an Oscar nominee. It wasn't. During the 18th century, this this artist has been hired, basically for this portrait to be sent to a love interest. And for the entire film, without spoiling too much, there's this kind of back and forth Kind of, do they like each other? Don't they? And without spoiling too much, again, once things spring into action, it almost feels like there just isn't enough time in the world. Um, you know, who cares if society shuns? You know, gay romances. Who cares if uh, you know you're you're meant for somebody else? I, I I wish I could love you for the rest of my life, and we have this time now. But it perfectly captures uh, you know in the in the way that before captures you know, that's a falling in love stage and Away We Go captures this mindset. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire captures, like, what it's like to, to lose love, but not because you've fallen out of love, but because time won't let you be in love. Time and circumstance, and I just find it very tragic and incredibly moving. Like, I found it nearly impossible to not, like, tear up watching this each time I've seen it. And again, I just think when it comes to love, it's one of the most powerful portrayals I've seen in, in recent memories. So again, I don't recall. I, I don't think either of you've seen it. Correct?
0: I haven't. Correct.
2: I, I would. I would highly recommend it. And to you, listeners at home, so far you've had uh, six very powerful films. So this is this is going well. I think. Let's get back into the not so fun moods. Let's uh, let's dive into the films that represent fear or. You know, they don't necessarily have to be a horror films, but the ones that make you feel fearful or helpless or desperate, you know, it's that uneasiness. So, James, what is your uh, quote unquote fearful film?
1: Well, this is going to be an interesting pick because I took a different approach to fearful. I went with Battle Royale.
2: Okay. Well, yeah. I, I, okay. I get it. That's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting pick. Why did you go with that one?
1: Well, so for those who don't know what Battle Royale is, Battle Royale is a story that deals with it, – it's described as a near future. But after a major recession, the Japanese government passes the BR Act, which is meant to curb the nation's rising juvenile delinquency. And what happens is once a year, a random middle school class is taken, dropped off on an island, and they say, you have three days. Here weapons – you must kill each other until one survives. If not one, if if there's more than one, you all die because they have bombs strapped to their necks. And the reason I decided to use this as fearful, because given the state of things in the world, this could become very real, very fast in a multitude of different forms. Like not just this kind of act, but (laughs) just like, this is about as dystopian as it gets To the point where it's like, it's almost could happen because it's a simple act. It's like, hey, we're going to take a group of kids. They're going to massacre each other for a few days. How do we know it's not happening right now somewhere?
0: It's interesting you bring that up because Battle Royale, um, the Hunger Games is constantly accused of ripping it off. And that book itself was also drawn from some very realistic origins. Um, The writer was watching war footage and reality TV together, and that's how she created the book. So it's very interesting that you're talking about Battle Royale's realism.
1: And I think because I, I prefer it to the Hunger Games, but I think of how simple it is, because with the Hunger Games, I think the only thing that really bogs it down for me is like how kind of intricate they try to make the politics of it seem. But this one is just straight up like, hey, here you go. This is the situation. Deal with it. And it just makes you think, you know, what's to stop any government from doing things like this? Yeah, it's kind of crazy because like we, we see what's going on right now. You know, it. It's, yeah, it's just one of those things where I'm like, okay, you know, I I imagine like every dystopian science fiction writer who's passed on would look at today's world and be like, this wasn't supposed to happen. We just wrote it like that. (laughs) But, you know, so yeah, that's mine for fearful. I
2: think that's a solid choice. And uh, yeah. Uh, let's 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 hope that has zero connection to this world uh rachel what is yours
0: well it's too late for mine because it already happened i am talking about contagion
1: oh i love contagion oh yeah No, but the thing (laughs) is i would
0: have said this five years ago because i think it's so effectively built with the way it paces the course of the pandemic and how many details it uses I think the only thing they said they got wrong in the movie was how quickly they did the vaccine, even though COVID was pretty quick, you know. But um, yeah, that slow building of dread. There are so many pandemic movies that don't get it right. And this one did. It's
1: because Steven Soderbergh directed it and he's on point with stuff like
0: that. Oh, yeah. And he had an incredible cast. And there's one point where Lawrence Fishburne's character actually uses the term social distancing. He's playing a doctor and like very eerie stuff. But even before I knew what a pandemic was like, that slow build, that, that fear... It really, really was terribly effective.
2: It's really telling that Contagion was, I think, like the most watched film amongst the first couple of weeks or like the first month of the pandemic. I think people were like not really sure how to receive this. Like they needed to see something um, to identify with it. And yeah, you know, 10 years later. Here, here. this was and unfortunately more relevant than ever uh,
0: I yeah, guess it cathartic.
2: Begin to cathartic yeah it doesn't even begin to describe it
0: I will say I sympathize a lot more with Matt Damon's daughter who just wants to leave the house
2: yes yes it's uh, it's really sad that it was very abstract in, in a whole myriad of ways
1: oh don't forget Jude Law's character
0: yeah that was criticized as being unrealistic at the time but now we've realized no that that happens
1: no, nope, people are like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, just in the same way that Network was criticized for being unrealistic. Well, I mean, so, uh, no, Net- Network is not my, uh, my fearful film. My fearful film is actually uh, Todd Haynes' film, Safe, the, the, breakthrough, the breakthrough film of Julian Moore. Um, that, oh my goodness. I'm unfortunately a bit of a hypochondriac. So I feel like it has helped me a lot when something seems off, like if I don't feel well, I'm usually right. Yeah, that that film is one of the most terrifying I think I've ever seen. You know, because if you watch other films, you can see like in a Texas chainsaw massacre, you know, like there's a serial killer and Jaws, you know, they're they're trying to make you scared of the shark. In Psycho, you can't you're not even safe in the shower anymore. Ooh. And safe it's literally you. Like, you yourself are the villain. Now, I know that there's actually, like, this catalyst, which is brought on by, like, you know, manufactured scents and, like, you know, uh, human-made things that, like, chemicals or things in the air or um, manufactured foods that that break down this character in, in safe. But it's still the body rebelling against itself, and this impossibility to get it to stop. And that terrifies me beyond belief.
0: Yeah, and it's something you can't escape. It's all around
2: you.
1: I'm going to have to check that out.
2: Yeah, Safe is... Um, it's a really creepy film. It, it almost feels like a, like a Stepford Wives. Like it's kind of shot like, really frigidly, but then like this stuff is happening, so it's almost like there's this lack of warmth in trying to get this to stop. And without spoiling, the way that it resolves... I wouldn't even call it bittersweet. I'd basically just call it the best of the worst case scenarios. It's still incredibly toxic. It's still incredibly problematic. It's just the way it had to resolve. Like, it, it could only have been worse from here. And there's, like, zero safety or faith. Like, once I, you know, once I leave this film, it's like, I don't feel better at all. Like, I just feel, like, really scared of anything. I'm scared of of everything around me now because anything could make me this. Anything could turn my body into a chamber of disease.
0: On a lighter note, can we make Julianne Moore and Todd Haynes work together every year? Do you think?
2: I wish they could. I wish they would. Actually, um, and I'm glad if there was any film that did it. It was uh, it was safe. The safe was the film that brought Julianne Moore to the masses and. Because she was acting before, but this was like her big breakthrough, and obviously that's far from heaven. So, uh, yes, please. I mean, perfectly fine with that. Also, that Velvet Underground film, looking forward to that uh, by Todd Haynes. Oh,
0: yeah, that's coming.
2: Yes, so I'm very excited for that. Um, Speaking of uh, not feeling too good, though, let's get into the disgusted films, the films that make us feel repulsed or like, you know, it churns our stomach more than anything we've ever seen. James, what repulses you?
1: I'm going to go with The Platform.
2: Oh, that's a recent one.
1: Yes, because the word disgust works on so many different levels. So for those who don't know what The Platform is, it's a Spanish film. And it deals with the main character who signs up for this program where he's put in this structure that's a tall building. And every 30 days, he's moved to a different room. Now, there is a large square in the middle of the room. That leads all the way down to the bottom. And at specific regiments of the day, a platform is raised down with an entire spread of food cooked by the top. Now, the idea is if everybody took just enough for themselves, food would reach everybody all the way to the bottom.
0: Uh uh-huh. But
1: the greed factor kicks in. So if you're at the top, you get first pick. So, you know, there's people scrambling to get whatever they can. And that's just the theme on the way down. And by the time it gets to the bottom, there's nothing left. So it works on the whole, you know, it's disgusting. The gluttony that you see, you know, it's the disgust of no one wants to help each other. There's the disgust of there's at points where you see people having to resort to eat human flesh. Oh my
0: God. Sounds like an allegory.
1: Yeah. It's, it's wild, but also just like the, disgust of someone was twisted enough to come up with a program like this. And yeah, it was just so wild. And it was, it was almost ironic that it was put on Netflix in 2020. And I was like, wow, that's very telling of the state of things. Cause it, you know, it kind of deals with this whole idea of how we feel about the 1%, you know, all this stuff at the top. And it's not really trickling down like it's supposed to. Yeah.
2: uh, This film was on my radar because at one, I think it was Midnight Madness at TIFF. So, like, basically these, uh, cult, these cult-to-be these cult films that they show at midnight and, like, two in the morning at the Toronto Film Festival. I, I didn't quite know that that was the extent of its plot. That sounds very interesting.
1: Oh, you'll have to watch it. It's amazing. I'm going to
2: have to check that out. Rachel, what makes you feel repulsed?
0: Well, there are gorier films out there, and there are more chaotic films out there. But I have to go with Black Swan.
2: Ooh. I adore this film. I love beyond that belief so i i have zero zero qualms with this please let's talk black swan
0: <laughs> okay so the thing that freaks me out most is having horrible things done to my fingers or to my skin and the whole oh. movie is about that <laughs> well i mean not the whole movie but all of the body horror there is just so much of this creepy stuff that starts off small and so it looks realistic and then it gets bigger and bigger and more and more disgusting you know I can watch a horror movie where somebody gets stabbed or shot or eaten by a monster, and I'm like, eh, just another movie. But something about Black Swan just gets under my skin. To put it that way,
2: because it's uh, because it all feels like this this mental thing where yeah.
0: well, it's like a fever dream. And like, yeah, I, I've picked at my finger in the past, so that's something that you know I can imagine happening, even though I know it's probably not possible. I hope
1: and- that scene is not for the faint of heart.
2: No. Yeah, that part where uh, nina stares just like basically pulls down a piece of her skin all the way down her finger uh, yeah. that, that feel that's a fear i think everyone has had in their lives at least of our time where we like pick at our fingers it, it's very realistic
0: and like i'm just i'm just cringing at the thought of several of those scenes like the one with the feathers and ugh, i i don't know if i can bring myself to watch that again
2: oh i adore that film i try to make it like a like a pilgrimage once a year, stuff like
1: that. I haven't seen it in a while. I should watch that soon.
2: Oh, I, I adore it. It's, um, it's my oh, favorite Natalie Portman. I remember,
1: I yeah. Also, Mila yeah. Kunis was great in that movie, too.
0: She was. Oh,
1: and, like, no, what's his, his name? name?
0: Don't get me wrong. It is an excellent, excellent movie, and it deserved all the praise it got. I just personally cannot handle it.
2: Well, that's perfectly fine. The question was, was about disgust, and I, that clearly I clearly disgusted you. You're thinking of uh, Vincent Cassell, by the way, James.
1: Yeah, that's it is. I, I like him as an actor. So seeing him, he he was really great in that role. Yeah, it's one of those movies where <laughs> it's like, I love it, but it's like, yeah, I'm very particular about who I share that with. Because it's like, you almost got to give like a, a lengthy warning speech, like, okay, just so you know. If this well, bothers you, you might not want to watch it.
0: <laughs> and as Aronofsky goes, it's pretty tame, actually. So I don't even know why it bothers me so much.
1: Well, because something like Mother just
2: feels impossible. Uh, as a wrestler, you know, you'd like to think that that wasn't somebody's life. Uh, Black Swan, in this day and age, so many of us are, like, putting too much pressure on ourselves. Um, it's too relatable. Crazy. Yeah, it's too relatable. <laughs> that's, that's probably what it is. Fortunately for me, I didn't pick a film that I actually like. The most disturbing film I've ever seen. And I, I, I watched this. I don't know if I brought it up on the pod before. When I was in high school, all I did was horror movies. Um, back in high school, I watched a movie which um, I wasn't too young to see. I just don't think it's fit for any human being to see. Um, it's called Men Behind the Sun, which uh, I've seen some really messed up movies. I've seen kind of the Holocaust I've seen, uh, Salo. I've seen, uh, I've seen some really, really messed up stuff. This is the one where to this day, I remember each and every single scene because it, it, it messed me up so much. So man behind the sun is by Japanese filmmaker, Mu Tenfei. And, uh, it's, it's basically about, uh, what happened at unit Seven Thirty One, which was this, um, this experimental unit where, uh, where the Japanese army were were conducting these experiments on on Chinese prisoners of war, uh, Chinese and Soviets. So that's all you need to know. It's not a lot of documentary, by the way. It's 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 based on real events, but it's like it's like a it's a feature. I don't even know where to begin with this. Like exploitational doesn't even begin to describe it. I don't even think I'm fit to explain half of what I saw on this pod. It's, it's, it is that twisted and screwed up. And the problem is it's not even just what happens in the film. It's what actually happens in the film. To so the point of using real corpses as, you know, part of, like, these scenes of autopsies. Like, there's, it gets too real. There's, like, animal abuse. It's it's ridiculous, this film. There's, I, I again, I can't even get into it. I can't, it it repulses me beyond no belief. It's one of the angriest films I've ever seen. Like where once I was finished, I just felt so angry that I wasted my time watching this. And to this day, it it grosses me out where there are specific scenes I can remember in my mind and I can't shake them off. Uh, Particularly uh, people being crucified on my minefields So whoever tries to save them. I need, I say more. Um, God, people being experimented where it's like, you know, being frozen and then heated at the same time to their skin and their bones disintegrate. I can't. I can't. It's It really is one of the most disturbing, repulsive things I think I've ever seen. And I can't, like, I'm not recommending this. I'm actually telling you, do not watch it.
1: I trust you on this. Wow, that might be a first. No, like, this is, this is a complete, like,
2: don't. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen in terms of how it's made. It's fine. It feels completely exploitational. Completely. It, I, I, I'm guessing it's trying to say something. I don't care what it was trying to say. It just, it, it went about what it was trying to say very poorly, very disturbingly, and Unlike Salo, where I can find the art in it, or a kind of a holocaust where I didn't like it, but I could see what I was trying to do, this was like, no, I'm done. And that actually, and this is true, this film actually was the turning point where I said, maybe I'm tired of watching horror movies, because that's not what I enjoy. I don't enjoy seeing how far this can be pushed. So at least that's the one good thing I took out of this. Expand your repertoire, because uh, if you just want to watch stuff to be shocked, you're going to get... You're going to get drivel like this. So (laughs) Men Behind the Sun, I don't recommend at all. I'd give it like a one out of five.
0: So we'll have to not check it out.
2: No, please don't. If you don't want to have nightmares.
1: Have we ever done that before? I don't think we've ever said that about a film before. Like we did some of the worst films ever, but even then we said like, maybe give it a watch. But this is the first time we were like, no, just don't even bother.
2: It, It feels completely, completely built on trying to make you feel sick. Like more than Saw, that's more than The Human Centipede.
1: Um, Honestly, I find The Human Centipede to be hilarious.
2: Oh, I mean, that, that's just like completely of a different universe, but Man Behind the Sun, I think the one thing that makes it worse, even though it's not worse, I would argue the stuff in Human Centipede is even worse, or like um, oh, what's that stupid movie called? Like, a, Oh, a Serbian film? This is based on real stuff that's like concretely real, and you're seeing it, but it, there's like zero tact, like a Come and See or or a Schindler's List would have, where it still feels hyper real, but it's not like just, just to make you feel sick. Like there's actual warmth and like, you know, humanity in these other films. To call Come and See a warmer film, you really have to be depraved. So that's all I'm going to say about it. Don't watch Men Behind the Sun. Let's move on to happier things. Let's finally get into... Yes, the, the films that make us feel happy are the most amount of like, glee. Let's end on a like, good note. So uh, what are our happy films, everyone? James, what's your happy film?
1: The Princess Bread.
2: Oh, that's a good one.
1: Because a- it's like, I can't not have fun watching that movie.
2: What I love about it is how much of it's clearly the grandpa, you know, the Peter Falk character just making up stuff on the spot. But like having fun with his grandson, it, it's just so infectiously happy.
1: Yeah, also, Carrie Yules is like charisma incarnate in that movie. Like, everything he does is like the smoothest thing anybody could do in any situation. Also, just the cast in general. It's like you have Wallace Shawn, Christopher Guest, Andre the Giant is even in it. Billy Crystal. Yeah. It's, you can't really go wrong. Oh, yeah, Mandy Patinkin, of course, probably one of his most quoted roles ever. Oh,
2: well it has to be.
0: <laughs> One of the most quoted lines in cinema.
1: Yeah, just Indigo
2: Montoya. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Also it's it's just it's Rob Reiner in his prime. Like it was like it's like this is like he he went full form for this movie and you can totally tell.
2: Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Rob Reiner as a director in general, but in the eighties, uh he was definitely in his prime. But this was like this was like his his opus, like just just the right amount of sugar, just the right amount of, of comedy, just the right amount of everything that he like pours too much of now.
0: And it never sinks into cliche ever. Or like which when it weird. does, it does on purpose.
2: <laughs> exactly, it's weird because it's like the entire thing is like to stray away from cliches or to like okay, let's give them the fairy tale ending. Like uh, it, it's very self aware, which I love.
0: Yeah, I would one hundred percent agree.
2: Yeah, it's, it, it really is something. I, I love The Princess Bride. Uh, Rachel, what did you pick for your happy film?
0: A lot of movies make me happy, but I think this one teaches you about happiness, and that is WALL-E. You've got this empty planet, and yet you've got this robot who's some who somehow is able to feel, and he gets happiness out of things like collecting items, watching old movies, and then As soon as he's in space, he starts to teach others how to be happy, how to embrace happiness once again after all these years of being disconnected. So you've got the captain learning about the world. You've got the passengers on the ship who sort of discover that spark again. And Eve the robot, who really was just a robot. And suddenly everything changes. And not only do humans embrace their planet again, but they're able to feel and they're able to discover joy. Yeah. So I think Wally is the movie that tells us most about what it is to be happy. and that defined dancing scene is the closest thing I've ever seen to cinematic bliss.
2: I love Wally, especially because it feels like the first half is like the modern day city lights, where it's like you know, Charlie Chaplin trying to achieve the same thing like the, the joy of like just purely visual storytelling. Uh, yeah, Wally's not silent, but there's like borderline zero dialogue for like the first half or portion of the film. And yeah, just pure joy, just pure joy, and uh, even like in the more serious parts, like you said, it was like, like they're chasing after happiness. So, I adore WALL-E. It, it probably is my favorite Pixar film, if not Ratatouille. Um, but like Wally, in in terms of like this this context, at least a good portion of it, some of the most uplifting stuff of the of the twenty first century. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the golden age to wrap things up. For me, the, there's like only one answer. There's a bunch of movies that make me happy, like uh, happy-go-lucky. Even though it's like a bit of a uh, genre-bender charade makes me insanely happy. Oh, but yeah. there's like one film. There's like one film where it's like, you know, for the other ones, okay, I of, um, you know, my depressed film. For the other ones, it's like, okay, maybe I can think of a couple. Singing in the Rain is by far the happiest damn film I've ever seen. That movie it,
0: like, is impossible. a million frames of joy.
2: I know. Like, even at its most serious parts, it's, like, still, like, full of glee, this entire movie. And, um, you know, not to get too, too personal, but I do suffer from sleep disorders. I've got insomnia and, and uh, sleep apnea. And for a good portion of my life, actually, during my master's program, uh, this is before I was getting the proper treatment because I didn't know what was going on, I would actually have, like, really bad spells where I couldn't even sleep. And uh, it would go on for so long that I, uh, I would, like, fear having to, like, go to the hospital. Or, um, like, I just, I would have to skip, I would have to miss school, I'd have to miss work. I, I couldn't function, I was, like, bedridden some days. And one of the things that would help was just putting on singing in the rain because it's, like, so happy that, like, you don't have to think at all. Like, it's just completely mindlessly happy, but still, like, obviously one of the best films of the 50s. But, um, you know, in terms of its joy, like, you don't have to earn it or anything. It just is there. And it just solves every problem for me. And, yeah, I I hold it to high regard because it has actually helped me, this film. But even when I'm not suffering in that way, it's impossible to not be happy watching it.
0: Have you seen Singing in the Rain, James? I have not. Oh man. I know it's coming around for the next no, I don't, but seriously thinking about that for our next mortgage board.
2: <laughs> it's it's worthwhile again. Um infectiously happy. And I, I can't think of a single person, even if you don't care for older films, I can't think of a single person who's like, Oh, this movie sucks. Everybody I know that's seen it, everybody gets the joy out of it. It just works.
0: And it's even about the movies.
2: It is actually. If you don't know anything about Singing in the Rain, it's actually about the transition from from silent movies to talkies, and um, about how we're going to overcome these obstacles and make it in in this new era of Hollywood. So, uh, if you look movies about movies, Singing in the Rain is about movies. So,
0: now, quick, let's wrap this up before I sing the whole soundtrack.
2: <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, which uh, quick tidbit? Most of the soundtracks actually not even original songs outside of Moses the poses. So So. Um, that was interesting to learn, but uh, the more I learned about Golden Age of uh, musicals, the more I learned that they're just kind of songs that, that were passed around, so Singing in the Rain was not written for Singing in the Rain. All right, so now that we're done all of the moods, um, let's just pick random films that don't have to be attached to any sort of mood. We just, we just want to recommend them. Just get our ra- random recommendations for the week going out, so let's go with the same order. Uh, James, what's your random recommendation?
1: I'm going to go with Snake Eyes, the 1998 American conspiracy thriller directed by Brian De Palma, starring Nicolas Cage.
0: Nice.
2: (laughs) I have not seen that. What is that about?
1: So, it's it's a really interesting movie. (laughs) Nicolas Cage plays a police detective, and he attends a boxing match, and it ends up spiraling into this whole investigation of an assassination and it's it's just wild. It's like everything like it, it has every trait of a De Palma film, but also like Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cage and it makes for a very interesting time.
2: De Palma and Nicolas Cage. That sounds like a match made in heaven or in hell, depending on who you ask. Uh Rachel, what is your random recommendation?
0: So I went with the trouble with angels. It is a children's movie, but uh, we don't have enough family-friendly content in this episode, so let's go ahead with that. And fair um, it's Haley Mills and Rosalind Russell. The movie was about 1966, and Haley Mills is a little brat, so her family sends her to a convent and like a fancy posh boarding school, poshish. And Rosalind Russell is Mother Superior, and nothing's getting past her, but Hayley Mills is determined to be a little prankster anyway. And as a kid watching it, I thought, you go, you get your revenge on those teachers, Hayley Mills, but now I just want to imitate Rosalind Russell's divine death glare.
2: Ah, uh, yes, yeah, one of those films that transcend, uh, you know, time, but, you know, when we watch it at different periods of our lives, we root for the other person, so um, I'm going to have to check that out. For me, I kind of went with something that just doesn't fit any real emotion. Uh, it's just a whole series of things. Um, also, Annette is really on my mind after the Cannes Film Festival. I'm going to go with Holy Motors by Leo Carax, which um, I don't even know what to say about it. If you don't know what it is, it's like borderline impossible to explain. It's a fantastic experimental film from the 2010s. Uh, it stars Denny Levant, who's uh, one of my favorite you know, song and dance actors of possibly all time Um, if you want to see a very cryptic movie about movies that really doesn't make much sense uh, on the surface but the the more you dig the more you really see these statements on like performance art and you know the the creation of motion pictures holy motors is is extremely profound and um, again one of the most imaginative films about films perhaps ever
0: and before we go, I should add that you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under the K Cut and our recommendations for this month. I recommended to Andreas Hedwig and the Angry Inch. How about you guys? What have you recommended this month?
1: Well, I recommended you Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench.
0: That's right. Which I keep mixing up with Guy Madden.
2: <laughs> Guy Madden on a Park Bench. <laughs> uh, uh, I recommended to James Aguirre the Wrath of God. By Frida Herzog. And what is our collective film?
1: Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD. Amazing.
2: So, thank you so much for listening. That was the K Cut, and now we are going into the L Cut.